Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of February 2023. We are more than halfway between the winter solstice and spring equinox, but still a few weeks left till that midpoint between solstices. And I don't know if you've been getting out at all. It's been a little wet here in Sitka, but I haven't let that stop me from getting out and exploring. It seems to be a good year for puffins in close. I've seen a tufted puffin and at least a couple of horned puffins in the nearshore waters around Sitka. I've seen them from the road. So if you're getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded a couple of days ago with past guest Simon Hook. This time we spoke about his time working as a guide on Antarctic cruises last November and December. So we'll go ahead and join the conversation with him uh, explaining what that meant. I was hired as a guide. And so what that entails is driving a Zodiac, um, having the skills to maneuver through ice, and then explain what we're seeing as a naturalist. And so it was kind of a completely new where everything is completely like brand new. I mean, you can study about it a little bit, but when you look at a few different seals, it's like if you don't understand the differences between the two, you don't know. It was really fun to stretch my wings, so to speak, as a naturalist to go see a new space and learn about it and and share it with people. So you were working, I imagine, with a number of other naturalists all at the same time. Were, were many of them sort of new as you were, or was there a lot of experience that you could draw on? Uh, so there was a really good mix. The expedition leader, was uh, he'd been doing this for 10 years or something like that. And there were people uh, throughout the season that kind of filtered through. We had a team of 20, and that was pretty much maintained for the duration of the season. There was a guy that had been down there since he was 19 years old, you know, called him Mr. Antarctica. He had seen some things and done some things that, uh, you know, many other people had, had never experienced. And we could ask, okay, there's a base over there. Uh, what is that? It's like, oh, that's an Argentinian base. Let me tell you about that. And he knew uh, the same way I could talk about Alaska. And so it was fun to have a team, an international team from all over the world. And so it was some from Australia, uh, some from the States, South Africa, you know, just a really a lot of fun. There was even people, what was it, a gentleman from Australia? Austria as well, and England, British. So going in there, you know, you've had experience for, well, quite a few years at this point in Alaska, Southeast Alaska, beyond Southeast Alaska at this point a bit, uh, working as a crew member, naturalist guide on small cruise ships, generally speaking, small to medium size, I guess. Uh, sure. The largest ship I've ever worked on is about 300 passengers. Okay. So yeah, th- yeah that's why these days that's... <laughs> Compared to some of those that that they're putting out there these days. Uh, So a lot of experience. You know the the flora, the the fauna in particular, probably the marine fauna here. And then then the the basic flora, you know, that that folks are going to be seeing. You can talk about the plants that they're going to be seeing, the kind of the major components of the ecosystem here. But then you're going to someplace new. So you're comfortable. And and I suppose there's trade-offs, right? You get to do that. You're comfortable with it. Every once in a while you see something new. It's exciting. But mostly it's the it's the normal stuff. And you can speak about it confidently and competently. Uh, you can go down there and you're like, well, this is all new. So that's exciting. And you get to sort of communicate that with the other people that are there. I suppose that's a nice thing. They probably appreciate that. But I imagine it's a little unsettling also to be like, I don't know anything. <laughs> you sure. know, all of this is new. Yeah. If you can talk about a glacier... Well, that'll okay, get you yeah. someplace. Yeah, yeah. And so you get down to the White Continent, and there are glaciers everywhere. And so you can you can make inferences based on 
the landscape itself. Okay, there's a mountain poking through. In Alaska, we'd call that a Nunatuck, um, you know, kind of in this mass of, of uh, kind of an ocean of ice up above. And these glaciers come spilling down and we're cruising amongst ice. And sometimes we don't see the animals. And so we have to talk about ice. And so there's different types of ice, sea ice and then uh, glacial ice and where that comes from, how it's formed. And, and all that kind of stuff comes into play. Um, other than that, animals, it's kind of uh, it's a new thing, right? Um, there's only one type of gull. It's a kelp gull. That's easy. You know, what kind of gull is that? Oh, it's a kelp gull. I know that one. Um, and so you gain a lot of information very, very quickly when you work with a team that has experience. And so uh, some of the people had transferred, some, some of the people on the team had transferred from um, one of the guys used to be in security. Uh, another uh, young lady used to be in food and beverage. And, and she says, I want to go over there. I want to do this thing. And so what they were doing is they were building new expedition staff, um, whereas they maybe didn't have the chops as a naturalist, but they could drive a boat. They can maintain safety of, of guests while they're on shore. And, uh, you know, they did a nice job there. And so it was kind of a, a neat thing to have people that were fresh. And at certain points, some of the people on the team asked me how many times I'd been down, down to Antarctica. And I was like, I, this is my first time. They were like, really? Um, just because you have the chops as a naturalist, you can start to describe things in a way that make things interesting. And if they have never described ice for an hour, which is our cruise, you know, you're out there in a Zodiac alone with um, maybe 10 people in a boat. You know, what are we seeing? Uh, a bunch of ice. Let's talk about ice. And so you really kind of start to dig into it. I mean, there's never not penguins down there, um, at least in the spring anyway. And so it was always, there's always something to talk about, but you start to learn really quickly the things you need to know and how you need to say it to make it interesting. Um, Cause we typically did, um, you know, if we're doing a Zodiac cruise in the morning or something like that, you take out two trips. And so whatever you saw is whatever you saw. And uh, it's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And then uh, back to the ship. So, here, I guess, I mean, I had a chance to be on a cruise once, and yeah, it was, there was a morning, come back for lunch, afternoon, and, and the boat I was on, um, I was a guest naturalist on, and there was a stop in one town that we had, and that was the full day, actually. They gave us sack lunches, I think, that day, and we stayed in town the whole day, and so there was some cultural stuff. But generally speaking, we were out in, stopping in remote places, you know, basically places that were completely undeveloped or just bays or whatever. Uh, there were some trails some of the times. Yeah, actually several of the times there were trails, but, but that was, that was about it. And in my understanding is, uh, going to Antarctica, you know, there's a town, I don't know how big it is, but that you, where you get on the boat, so to speak. And then there's not really a lot of town when you go South from there. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And so there's, uh, most of it is just wild. Mm-hmm. And so you leave from uh, usually the port of Ushuaia, um, which is getting so busy um, that uh, some of their towns are, are slowly starting to pick up on um, kind of arriving people from all over the world and shipping out from there. Punta Arenas is another one. Um, but uh, Punta Arenas traditionally was, you know, historically a place where people would set off for expeditions, um, you know, in the early years. Uh, but nowadays Ushuaia is, is really the, the kind of main hub. And from there, uh, there's maybe uh, at one point, there's like six or seven uh, ships on the dock. Most of them are not very big because there is a lot of uh, a lot more regulation than there is in Alaska. Um, 
And so when you look at kind of how it all fits together in Alaska, you can pretty much go wherever, however, like in Juneau, seven ships show up. In Antarctica, there's one ship that shows up to each place um, because there's a ship scheduler um, and there's uh, an entity that kind of arrived and kind of set things up to keep things wild. You know, a lot of those places are not inhabited. There are bases down there, but uh, because of COVID, we couldn't visit. And it, and so, you know, it's people did miss out on, on buying some T-shirts and things like that. And, uh, you know, as well as the bases making a little money on their, uh, you know, the trinkets and things that they made. But, uh, you know, it's it's like it is essentially designed to be wild. There's one place, uh, Port Lockroy, that we visited um, that for um, – four young British ladies were running. Um, and so essentially it's really the only place to go shopping um, <laughs> in comparison to uh, many of the places in, in Alaska. Um, and people did kind of relish that, um, you know, to have the opportunity to get Antarctic things for kids. So stuffed penguins and um, I got some tea towels for the ants and things like that. And Shackleton whiskey, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that is also a historic base. By stuffed penguins, you're not talking like, you're, you're talking like no. stuffed animal penguins. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, synthetic stuffed yeah. <laughs> penguins, not, not, uh, not life size or, or anything like that. No, the animals, no. Um, in fact, you're not allowed to touch anything, um, pretty much. So anything historic, leave it alone. Leave it there, leave it on the ground. Report it if something's weird. And, uh, you know, and there's an entity to take care of those things if uh, if it needs repair or something like that. So my understanding is Antarctica is governed by international treaty. It's not owned by any single nation. It is. And so there were originally a certain amount of claims made. But once the, uh, once the treaty was settled, um, it said, okay, you are occupying this space, but you don't control it. And everything you do needs to be removable. And so there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, so post, um, post-World post War II, there's a lot of um, British bases that were formed. They started with A and almost got all the way to Z uh, so far as bases. And so they're occupying space. And so, you know, possession being nine-tenths of the law, you know, it's like, oh, we have a base there. That's ours. And so once that treaty was signed, it was, okay, this is a base. You're occupying it. Whether or not you can get there, whether or not you maintain it. Um, but a lot of the stuff that happens down there is um, kind of maintained by the British Antarctic uh, Trust. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a heritage trust. And so they'll maintain old survival huts. And so there's f- f- certain st- stops you go to that um, that are historic. And you have the opportunity to go into this old hut with cans of oatmeal and old bunks and snowshoes and, you know, there's plaques up there, interpretive signs and all that stuff. And, and uh, if you're not interested in that, you can always go see penguins. There's always penguins at those places, it seems like. Because where there's human access, um, we tend to build stairs and ramps. And penguins love stairs and ramps. Um, and they'll just kind of use that space. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I suppose. Well, and what's the length of a trip? So you're getting off, you know, you're leaving the town. And, and I guess you got to go through the sort of... Tierra del Fuego uh, bits of, of Chile. Sure. And then the Drake Passage is kind of the big crossing. Yes. And so you, you leave Ushuaia and you go down the Beagle Channel is what it's called. And so on one side is Chile and the other side is Argentina. 
and that is kind of a no man's land. It's kind of uh, a place where you're not supposed to stop. You're not supposed to stop and, and observe. You're just there to pass through. Because you are on an Argentinian visa, um, you're not supposed to go to Chile. Um, and so there's all this kind of business involved in that. And so once you exit the Beagle Channel, um, you're at the mercy of the Drake. And so um, it has a reputation for being um, quite ruckus at times. Um, it's the Great Drake Lake, which is nice and smooth, or the Great Drake Shake, which is uh, which can be uh, quite intense because um, the circumpolar winds that travel around Antarctica don't. There's no land masses there to stop them, and so these storms come rolling through the tip of South America, and the distance between Ushuaia and South America and uh, and the peninsula, and the only other real place to hide is, um, you know, it takes about two days. Oh, two days of yeah. crossing. Wow. Two days of travel. Wow. And so um, eventually some of the some of the points you reach are uh, the Antarctic convergence. Um, some points of, you know, points of interest is where the convergent waters of South Antarctic hit the uh, Atlantic. Or the, the Atlantic waters, the Southern Atlantic hits the Antarctic waters. And so you can watch um, as they log, um, the temperature will drop and then it'll melt and then it'll relax. And at that point where that elbow meets, that's where um, the convergence is typically. And so there's a certain amount of upwelling. Um, sometimes you can find more birds, uh, more bird life or uh, more whales around those particular areas. And uh, it's it's just kind of a lot of, um, it's it's not a specific line but it's usually drawn at about 60 degrees south. Hmm. So two days, so you're presumably well out of sight of land during a good chunk of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then how long are you actually um, in Antarctica, you know, near near land in or la- land and ice, I suppose, in Antarctica? Um, so it's usually about a 10 or 12-day trip. Okay. Um, kind of depending on what's going on. So sales-wise, there's a certain amount of uh, trips that uh, don't only specialize in going to the peninsula. There's other trips that go to the Falklands and South Georgia, and those are uh, quite spectacular. Um, when you start to look at those, that's you know the better better part of a month. Mm. Um, and so that'll All be on 20, 20 days, wow. uh, twenty two days, and so um, you know, and so you have this kind of basic trip, which is the Antarctic, and then you have um, Antarctic trips that go in depth. And so they want to get you to the Arctic Circle or something like that, all ice conditions dependent. They want to get you to the Weddell Sea. Um, and so there's a few different things. And then if you're really into it, um, starting in uh, New Zealand and ending in Ushuaia, it's a circumpolar, uh, not completely, but kind of a semi-circumpolar activity um, where you go halfway around Antarctica and end up in Ushuaia, um, which is... You have to really like the ocean because um, it is it is out there and you're looking at birds and you're looking at penguins, but um, there's not a lot of life out there. Um, is it is it patchy or just sparse? It's patchy. Yeah. Um, so the you know, we start to look at, at populations, things like that. There's always penguins around. Um, in fact, the Adelie penguins in the south are more abundant than any other place. Um, but you go to a place like... Uh, um, you know, certain, certain places, and there's going to be 125,000 nesting pairs of Adelie penguins. And so 
you start to think about that. It's like, okay, there's 125,000 birds here and they're all laying eggs, but some other places there's going to be even more. Wow. So 200,000 animals. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a numbers game. Um, whereas you start to look at, at kind of what happens in a place like that. There are, of course, predators that uh, will steal an egg um, and penguins do their best, you know, being stumpy, flightless birds, um, you know, to just kind of to try to defend their, their chicks, their offspring. But if you think about the how the – if all those birds were to be success, su- successful, raising more than one chick, you know, usually lay two eggs, sometimes three, um, at that point, if they could raise them to uh, a juvenile stage – the population would explode fairly quickly. And so um, Antarctica makes sure um, of, of, of those sorts of things by maintaining the weather. And uh, also there's other birds that rely on penguin uh, penguin colonies to, to feed their own chicks. Yeah, South Polar School is one that I remember hearing about being a, a, one of the aggressive. They're kind of related to Jaegers and, and mm-hmm. such. Did you end up seeing some of those? Or? Oh, we did. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And so they're, they're kind of the bird marauders. They'll yeah. fly around the colony kind of looking for an opportunity. And usually this happens mostly um, if they have kind of an imbalance. They, they lay one egg and then uh, a week later they lay another. And they incubate them both at the same time. And so the first chick gets out and gets more food. It grows faster. And sometimes that second chick hatches and it gets picked off pretty quick um if they're focused on that one chick and they're looking the other way they can grab the egg or uh, once that chick is hatched if they're feeding and that that uh skua kind of takes a look um that's kind of what happens so the other the other predators uh, that we typically saw were uh southern giant petrels and kelp gulls and so those are the main three the skua the petrel and the gull Mm. Well, skua is one that's kind of of interest because we do occasionally see South Polar skuas here. My son saw one last summer off of Shelikov. Um So they do occasionally make it this far north. I guess another bird that is known for that long-distance travel is the Arctic terns. Did you end up seeing any Arctic terns down there, just out of curiosity? Um, I have a story. Um, so we were at Deception Island, which is uh, essentially you drive the ship through a place called Neptune's Bellows, and you that get sounds to, promising. Oh, yeah. It's really good. Um, <laughs> named by whalers, of course. And so through Neptune's Bellows, and you arrive in Deception Island, which is an active volcano. It's a caldera. And so it was, uh, you know, originally a whaling place. Um, and then the British set up uh, kind of uh, – there's, there's kind of a lot of things that happen there. But just kind of overall, the place that we, we go to is uh, Whaler's Bay, just inside. Um, and so the beach is warm, the sand is steaming, and so you can dig down and it's hot enough to burn your hand. Um, and so there's constant, uh, constant watching over that. And so every once in a while, what happens is that, uh, there'll be kind of a heat plume that comes through and it kills a bunch of krill. Sometimes it washes it ashore and, uh, and turns will kind of pick them off. It's quite simple. Um, it essentially cooks the krill. And they end up on the beach. And so there were uh, quite a few Antarctic terns. And so they're in breeding plumage. And so the differences between the two is one's in breeding plumage, the other isn't. And I saw quite a large flock flying over as I was talking about the history of the space. And it was like, oh, I know those people. 
you know, I, you know, it was, it was kind of, I got really excited about it. Of course we had an official ornithologist, um, you know, on board the ship and, uh, you know, the expedition leader said, Hey, there's some turns headed your way. And I confirmed, yes, I saw them. I'm pretty sure those are art, 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 Arctic turns that, uh, that we, we get up North. And so it was kind of like, a you know, a neat seeing an old friend. Yeah. Like, hey, guys, I'll see you this summer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think with terns in particular, I've heard, you know, and they're not the only species, but there's often one of the patterns of migration is that the furthest north will also migrate the furthest south. Sure. And so that, you know, the terns that are going to, the Arctic terns going to Antarctica may be the ones breeding on the north slope. So to, so I don't know where the ones that would be breeding Nesting in Southeast Alaska, for example, Glacier sure. Bay and and elsewhere, where those would be, maybe they're going all the way that far south as well. I'm not I'm not sure, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I would be excited. I'd be like friends, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, it was it was yeah. really really neat. And so one of the major thoughts this particular year was uh, avian bird flu as well, right? Yeah. So migrators bringing bringing things all the way down, and as we were there. Um, throughout November and December, it was moving down the coast of Chile, and it was kind of slowly starting to move. So there's there's a few other birds, um, kind of the the cleanup crew, um, the sh- Arctic sheathbills, mm-hmm. and so um, I've I've seen pictures of those. They are um, not traditionally pretty. No, maybe as I would describe <laughs> a face them. described as uh, <laughs> only a mother could love. Yeah, um, yeah, and so they they kind of look like they're vulturish. Um, and so this kind of plays into the part of, of the reason why vultures look the way they do is because they maintain uh, cleanliness that way, because they don't have feathers to catch blood or whatever entrails they're working with. Um, and so this particular bird maintains a certain amount of uh, nourishment, um, feeding on waste. And so um, part of that krill that comes out of penguins isn't completely digest- digested, and so they take advantage of that, um, which is... Um, kind of gross but um it's a living uh, somebody's got to do it and they do a great job um and so one of the thoughts is those birds um are not water birds they can't land on water if they do they'll drown and so they don't have webbed feet and they make the migration from uh south america to antarctica and the peninsula to you know hatch their chicks feed their babies and then off they go and so that was one of the thoughts of uh transmission and they will oftentimes um, land on a ship on in South America or near South America and land on the ship and then um, catch a ride, which <laughs> is kind of cheating. But yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's important. It's easier that way. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was one that was actually uh, had gotten into trouble and uh, we had a, a trained veterinarian on board. And so we put it in a box and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of, they're pretty pretty sassy little birds um you know and they just don't care they're the kind of bird that walks up to you and looks at you hey you got any food um you know we'll 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 spend you know you'll you'll sweep them off the ship and they'll come back right around and land again you know kind of like maybe a pigeon or something like that um but yeah behaviorally they're kind of funny and they'll eat just about anything they'll sit on your zodiac and peck at the peck at the ropes um you know, peck at rubber on the deck or, or just kind of anything, um, get into stuff. Oh, yeah. I, you know, the bird flu, I guess made a little bit of a resurgence here in the fall. And, and I, when I was speaking to Jen and Victoria for 
the show, you know, in advance of the Christmas bird count. And I don't know how if it if it settled out and is if they haven't had any more cases since. I haven't I haven't talked to him, but there was a, a flurry of cases that they suspected was from one bird that was dead that mm-hmm. that died from it, and then it was ravens and an eagle or two that all kind of in the same neighborhood got sick, and they sure. never found the carcass, but but it seemed suggestive that and maybe one goal. Um, that something like that had happened. And so like these birds, and then the question is it doesn't affect all bird groups the same. So sure. um, some some don't seem affected by it at all. So yeah, I, I could imagine that being a a challenge. Um, of course. Yeah, in, in that area uh, as, as the season, season went on. So you mentioned that there is a trip from New Zealand, but I guess just geographically speaking for, you know, something other than a long trip, uh, the the only reasonable place to essentially visit Antarctica from is the tip of South America because I guess you have that Antarctic Peninsula is that what's called mm-hmm. coming up and and the uh, tip of South America going down still a two day crossing it's not like they're close right but they're a lot closer than anywhere else it, <laughs> it seems like pretty much so yeah. like Africa or Australia Tasmania I guess New Zealand those are all well north of that southern tip of well and plus they don't have that peninsula coming up to meet them so to speak so. Right. Um, so that, I guess, would anybody that wants to see Antarctica, most of them are going to end up going to South America, going going via the the route that you you're describing. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. And so when you when you start to look at kind of tourism in general, um, you know, some of the bigger highlights um, are are kind of yeah, just really right there on the peninsula. Um, but some of the gems of that particular area are kind of the subpolar islands. Um, you know, it, they were quite striking. The uh, the Falklands or uh, Malvinas or uh, the um, South Georgia Island was spectacular. Uh, scenery or wildlife? So wildlife. lots of, lots well, of birds? It's or? kind of, um, you know, it's like one of the greats is walk there. Uh, David Attenborough. It's like when you go there, there are, uh, there's, you walk across farmland um, because that's the main industry in the in the in the Falkland Islands, and you get um, you know it's mostly sheep, and you walk across these farmlands and you get to a black-browed albatross colony, and you get to see them. You get to watch them courting, sitting on their eggs, with rockhopper penguins around, and and it's just kind of that's where you could recognize the photographs or the shots, the angles that they used as David Attenborough talked about this place. Um, and, and, you know, shares it with the world in, in you know, whatever uh, particular BBC um, show was happening there. And so that was just kind of, uh, that was just a morning. And so it's kind of like this uh, really kind of, I know this place. You recognize it. And it is, you know, one of the great places because you can just go there. There's, you know, a couple hundred black-brown albatross right there. And you can't miss them. And you can just sit there and watch them. They're not afraid. Um because they don't have uh, land ma- land animals, um, there's huge eradication programs to get rid of rats and things like that, um, which you know happened in Alaska as well. Um, but they found out that uh, you know it's it's easier just to essentially once all the birds leave from uh, their their nesting period, all the birds fledge, uh, the babies are gone, and then they just kind of carpet bomb the island with poison, mm. and so the loss of a few birds that you know happen to get in that cycle of poison is worth it for the eradication of rats which will consume um 
significant populations of eggs, especially with kind of a sensitive, long-lived animal like an albatross. It was it was kind of um, you know, and a lot of a lot of success in that in that particular realm as well. And so biosecurity was a huge part of things as well. Um, you know, we had to clean boots um, and you know picking out seeds, any rocks, anything in those boots. Um, and so to make sure that we weren't transferring seeds from one place to another where those seeds didn't belong. And so um, there are two flowering plants um, in the traditional sense that we think, um, you know, there's two flowering plants in Antarctica, just two. And so the idea is to not create any more that haven't arrived there naturally you know there's certain things that travel on the wind easier spores and things like that mosses and lichens and all that stuff um but to maintain the the health of the space the wildness of the space and the kind of the integrity of that space as well we did uh quite a bit uh from the human standpoint of not trying to um share illnesses like bird flu or uh, kind of bring seeds from one place to another or any grasses or what have you. So any biological material. Um, so you'd go through a boot scrubber. Sometimes we'd have to pick penguin poo out of the boots, you know, physically scraping it out and then um, go through the boot scrubber and step into bioside and letting that dry. And then going back and checking it again, you know, as part of being a guide um, <laughs> to make sure that um, we do not negatively affect the spaces we're traveling to, as opposed to some of the times in, in Alaska, you know, so there's some, you know, invasive plants, um, Japanese knotweed and things like that, that, that just kind of propagate very quickly. And once it's transferred, it's very difficult to get rid of. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge, you know, as people move around, I mean, and animals move around a lot of, a lot of seeds hitch rides on, on animals and, and things like that. And, uh, certainly, where there's disturbance, that will favor things that can handle disturbance over over other things. But yeah, down there, especially where it's been so little impacted, and what impacts are probably pretty concentrated on the specific bases or whatever, because it seems a little challenging uh, conditions-wise for, for folks to, to make much of a living there. It's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, considering how much of the world people settled you know, in, in prehistory kinds of like, like over the, over the millennia, of course, Antarctica, I guess is, is one other than some really remote ocean islands that Antarctica is about the only place that there weren't people. Sure. So, and that's still includes some pretty crazy habitats, uh, where, where folks have made their, made their living. So it's pretty amazing. But you mentioned the albatross and, the Southern Ocean, you know, we have three species of albatross here that, that are in the Northern Pacific. Uh, but there are far more species of albatross down there. Did you, and that's one of the things I guess birders might be inclined to go Absolutely. on such a trip is to see the albatross crossing the Drake Passage. Uh, I guess it's, it's sort of like if you, can, if you can put up with the waves, and probably it's better albatrosses when it's not calm. Right. Uh, because they they like to ride the wind and stuff, but seeing seeing the uh, or watching, I guess the water, hoping to see these albatross fly by. Absolutely, and so um, you know it was it was really spectacular. I mean, again, you're out there on a boat or a ship in the ocean, and you're kind of at the mercy of whatever happens. And the same thing is with these birds. 
and they make a living on the wind and they they profit off of the wind blowing and so when people say oh it was perfect the drake was such a lake and it's like well you're missing something like i personally say that um you're missing something and so people oftentimes look out at the ocean they say there's nothing here it's just water no 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 wait 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 there's there's all kinds of life here and so um i saw you know all the greats um the wandering albatross royal albatross um um this what that the light mantled city albatross they're they're striking in color um uh gray headed albatross it just it really really amazing birds to have the time to spend on the back deck watching and so of course most ships have props they spin up uh, a certain amount of food um there's a certain amount of off fall as well oftentimes the ships will grind up a certain amount of food um to a certain size and pump it overboard um and so they can wait for that um you know, Southern Giant Petrels love cheeseburgers, <laughs> you know, as I might assume. And, uh, you know, at that point, um, it's really amazing to see these birds following and and using the wind to make their living, uh, to feed their chicks, to go travel, you know, sometimes 500 miles in a day um, on the wind and find their food up to 12 miles away. As the wind blows, they can go upwind and travel upwind and find this food that they're looking for. And it's really wild to even think that these birds in this huge ocean with the wind blowing can make a profit you know that they can make a net profit in their life by feeding their chicks and making this happen and uh it was really really fantastic to have the opportunity to see these animals um doing what they do and of course we did see them on calm days as well but it's not exciting their wings were folded up they were sitting on the water waiting for the wind to blow you know it's just kind of yep uh here's another day and so, um, you know, in the, in the spring, we saw so many birds and so much bird life. It was really a lot of fun um, because, again, everything was new. You know, if you've never been down there, if you've never seen a wandering albatross, there, there it is. You hear the stories about this huge bird, you know, with an 11-foot wingspan um, soaring along in the ocean. It's kind of you get this opportunity to kind of really kind of expand the story in your mind of what this animal is. When you see it and you actually you have this dynamic soaring happening in front of you um, as they use the wind to propel themselves. And uh, it's really, really amazing to have that opportunity and, and see these animals um, all the way down to uh, little Wilson storm petrels, you know. And so um, there was Antarctic prions. There's, uh, you know, just really kind of a large, um, large grouping of birds when you think about what Antarctica has to offer, though, it's not a huge diversity, typically. It's more or less a lot of the same thing over and over. And so you can pick out those one or two, um, those kind of one-offs. The, the gray-headed albatross that I saw was one single 15-minute session. That's different, you know, where you start to recognize the things that, have, that you've seen already. And you give, you give it a second. It's like, well, that's different. You know, you photograph it and you're able to identify it and then learn about it. And, and it just kind of builds on itself um, because at that point, it's it's all new. And it's uh, it was just a lot of fun to kind of stretch myself and, and to look at the things that Antarctica has to offer and, and, and really have it happen in front of you. But, uh, yeah, kind of a birder's paradise. Um, and so you look at uh, penguins in general. Most of the things you see in Antarctica are, are going to be uh, brush-tailed penguins to start with. 
and there are three main brush tails. There's the chin strap, the gen two and the Adeli. And, uh, you know, if you want to see a King penguin, you pretty much have to go to South Georgia. Um, so if you want to see a king penguin, go to South Georgia. And so um, at one point we stopped on a beach and it was kind of covered in penguins and baby elephant seals um, called wieners because um, they've been weaned. And then uh, large adult elephant seals and a few um, fur seals. And then at that point we kind of landed there and it kind of made this trail through the animals um, using flags and you get up there and you spend a little time and you say to yourself, wow, that's a lot of birds. And that's just so much life in one particular area. It's hard to compare to anything else because there's, you know, in some places almost 300,000 birds wow. uh, right there, king penguins, and they're in all stages of, of life. And so, you know, when do they have their eggs? Eh, they keep going. They don't leave. They just keep on rolling. And so there's, um, you know, young that are, they call them oakum boys, where they're penguins upright, kind of relatively independent, no longer uh, particularly observed by their parents, covered in this brown fluff. And so they can't swim yet. And their parents, they're waiting for their parents to come back. Um, and so their parents come back and they feed them uh, through regurgitation and they back and forth and back and forth over this time period. And then at that point, uh, eventually they'll molt their feathers to adulthood. And then they're officially a penguin. Go find your food. Off you go. And so there was, uh, there was in some places, um, some people saw an egg transfer because king penguins keep their egg very similar to the way emperor penguins do on their feet. Hmm. And so it's not a place that is uh, kind of completely covered in ice and glaciers. There are ice and glaciers involved, but the South Polar Islands are warm enough for them to spend their entire life there around that space. And so on that particular island in South Georgia, there's something like 500,000 animals, 500,000 king penguins or something like that. And uh, at one stop, there was 200,000 animals. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of, lot of birds. Yeah. And it's hard to fit your mind around, too. It's yeah. like you can hear that number and look out. And, I, of course, I took a panoramic photographs and I tried to, tried to capture it. But it's like yeah, it's, it's something that has to be seen and felt. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's uh it is as you mentioned that you know the the diversity of of species there isn't necessarily so high. A few years ago there was somebody that did a a world big year decided mm-hmm. and he he started the year in January and went to uh Antarctica, which is summer. And of sure. course, as you say, it was a like a week week plus long trip. Mm-hmm. And he acknowledged he says, you know, I would have gotten more birds if I'd gone somewhere else. Sure. I, like going here, I got birds that I wouldn't get, get anywhere else, but there weren't that many of them. And, of course, you're, you're not going to get all the birds in, in the world in a year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he got several thousand. But uh, but he did. He said, you know, part of it is he just wanted to see the see the Antarctic. You know, as part of this experience, he wanted to see the Antarctic birds and, and have the experience of of all of those birds, even though there weren't that many species. On the plus side, though, there's not that many species. It's a little easier to, to figure out what they are. And, it's simple, and, yeah. yeah. Identification becomes kind of repetitious. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, or, or you know, some people got over-penguined. Oh, they were just, like, done with the penguins? Well, but, but when you go to Antarctica, if you don't have the expectation of penguins every time all over the place, it becomes this kind of, 
well, more penguins, huh? It's like, well, what did you expect? It's Antarctica. I mean, at a certain point, this is the life that's here. You know, yeah. of course, the really exciting stuff that people want to see are killer whales. Did you um, see some of those? We did. Yeah. Um, we saw a, a group of, uh, we saw some B1s and we also saw B2s. And so um, when you start to look at the ecotypes, of course, there's four different ecotypes and there's subgroups contained within those groups. Um, and I'm maybe getting it backwards, but the ones and twos, uh, the B1s and the B2s, uh, one of those groups is one that specializes in eating mostly penguins, occasional seals and things like that. And the other group, the B1s, I believe, um, are the ones that will group together and kind of create a bow wake and wash seals off ice mm. and break apart the ice. And so it's a specific feeding behavior that separates them. And they do, of course, look different. Their eye patch is different. Their saddle's different. And uh, yeah, kind of very different behaviors. But we had an opportunity to stop at, uh, in one place and just kind of observe them for quite some time because they stuck around and they would, um, you know, and so the penguins kind of uh, were on edge, of course. Um, the seals seemed relatively, eh, Everything's fine um, until it wasn't. Um, we didn't get to see a kill uh, or anything like that, but it was just exciting enough to see them and to know that they exist in a place like that. I guess the other big predator I remember hearing about from down that way is leopard seals. Oh, yeah. Do you see some of those? I've heard those can be a little intimidating. They can be. It yeah. depends on what you're up to, um, yeah. but some of them are fairly well known to be aggressive towards zodiacs. Oh. They love to bite the pontoons. <laughs> Um, can they pop them? Absolutely, yes. Oh, wow. And yeah. so we had one um, that was quite near the ship, and it was kind of, um, you know, it had a bit of, a, it seemed like a home base, and it was like around this one particular piece of ice. And we didn't get incredible photographs. I didn't get incredible photographs of it. But to have the opportunity to spend time among that animal and to hear the stories that of, of the capability of those animals is really, it was really a lot of fun. Um, because you look at this animal, and it's, it's oftentimes described as kind of reptilian in that it has this kind of head and its jaw hinges almost 90 degrees to fit a penguin in really easily um, or maybe a seal or something like that. And so they're they're really good at what they do and, and at home in a place like Antarctica, um, spending time around the ice and kind of lounging itself and, and, and doing all those sorts of things. But... Um, we had an opportunity, and it was it was uh, it actually kind of sang a little bit as well. Mm. Um, as as it was quiet, we could hear it um, making kind of either a calling noise, a territorial space noise. Uh, but once they start to blow bubbles, uh, most com- companies ask you to move away because they don't want to pop the zodiac. Um, yeah, <laughs> and so sometimes there's uh, you know so kayakers, people kayak in Antarctica as well. Um, and they're oftentimes very well kitted out with full dry suits and things like that, uh, especially with the company I was with. Full dry suits and and kind of uh, flotation, of course, and uh, excellent guides um, that are certified. And they take people out in small groups. Um, and so every once in a while, they encounter one as well. Um, and oftentimes, the it's the safety boat, safety zodiac's job to kind of lure the animal away. Yes, you get to look, but um, the potential for that animal to be unpredictable is is pretty high would they attack people in the water um there's stories about um them actually not doing that okay um but it's it's kind of um even there's a there's a gentleman a photographer named paul nicklin and so he had um 
kind of set off to to photograph some of these animals when he was down there. And this female, um, I don't know if anyone has heard this story or not, but this female started to bring him a penguins. Oh. And so the first one uh, that she brought was this penguin that was relatively alive. And so if you were a young leopard seal, you might relish an injured penguin, you know, and just kind of enjoy that. And it ended up that she kind of, I think it happened maybe three or four times, she successively brought deader and deader penguins to him until eventually... It's not a very smart young leopard seal. <laughs> no, um, but it was it maybe maybe maternal reaction or something yeah. like that. And it was, it was kind of this kind of... Um, he has photographs of this female leopard seal bringing dead, dead penguins to him to, to eat. Wow. Yeah. And so it's kind of, yes, there are, of course, stories that are scary. Um, but there are also quite a few more stories that are just kind of exceptional. Yeah. Well, I should ask you, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the ice early on and talking about uh, ice for an hour. Um, and, you know, when you see pictures of, of course, you do see pictures of the penguin colonies and that sort of a thing. But the thing that, you know, the thing that I most associate with Antarctic photos of Antarctic proper is this sort of um, pictures of ice that are like they just they seem on a whole different scale. I don't quite know what the right words are to describe it, but there's just a certain look to the Antarctic ice photos that that I see that is not. You know, I've seen p- pictures of Glacier Bay and, and places like that too, but I think because it's continental ice, I don't know if it maybe be similar in Greenland, but I'm guessing probably not because I've seen pictures of from Greenland as well, and it didn't quite seem the same. So maybe it just has to do with this continental ice mass that that's down there, but this kind of massive uh, ice scape, ice and water scape, I guess, yeah. rather than a landscape. And so I imagine that was something that, I mean, I I, I can only imagine that that your first time down. I don't know what the weather was like. Your first trip, maybe it was cloudy and you couldn't see anything. But but you know that first time when when the views opened up and and like. I don't know if like overnight you arrived and got up early and then there it is. Or of course, there's a lot of daylight down there that time of year. Sure. Uh, and you you mentioned spring and spring, of course, is November. Uh, you know, as a practical matter. Um, so yeah, what was kind of that experience for you like of of seeing this? Uh, I mean, you've been in Glacier Bay, you've been around sure. Southeast Alaska, and and the ice that's here, and the you know there's. I think you've been in probably some of the larger, seen the larger glaciers elsewhere in in south uh, south central Alaska as well, oh, sure. presumably. But still, it seems like Antarctica is a whole different thing. It is. It's got its own thing, and yeah. so um, so far as ice production, um, there's things that happen in Antarctica that produce ice shelves, and so at that point, what's happening is a glacier has come down um, from a slope and has arrived on the ocean, and it's so cold there that it doesn't melt as quickly. And so it creates these huge, um, you know what you referred, there's certain names for certain things. And so I refer to them typically as tabular icebergs where they're straight on either on each side and then straight on the, you know, flat on the top. Um, and so they look just kind of squarish. Of course they're not from above. Um, but they create this huge ice there that is breaking off usually from, um, places like ice shelves. And so a glacier kind of comes down, the ice floats, and eventually a storm comes along or something like that, and it causes deflex and then break. And then at that point, that creates some really big ice. And so the biggest piece of ice that we passed, we didn't actually get to see um, because it was foggy. 
and so a certain amount of fog in a place like that um, because of the system that exists there. Um, most of the animals there eat krill, and most of the krill there eat plankton. And so there's a certain amount of um, chemical activity um, that kind of is a, is a recycling thing. And uh, you have uh, whales that are fertilizing and all that kind of stuff. And so one of the theories on how this all works is that um, the plankton create um, DMS, essentially, which is dimethyl sulfide, and dimethyl sulfide aerates, and it uh, helps to um, accumulate water. The particle actually will create clouds, and that's typically why there's quite a bit of fog down there, as well as the temperature of the water and the dew point and all that stuff. Um, but this particular piece of ice was, uh, I believe it was 60 kilometers by two kilometers. Wow. So, I mean, even yeah. if you could see it, you'd, it would have looked like... It looked like a wall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Land. Yes. You know, that's yeah. floating. Well, sure. how would I know? <laughs> right. And do, do those actually calve Absolutely, from those? Yes. Like you might see a glacier calving, but... Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, didn't get to see that. I didn't get to experience a big piece yeah. like that calving. Um, but there was some small pieces that came off some of the bigger pieces. And, and it's that is, um, when it comes to safety, uh, one of the most kind of um they seem relatively stable and um innocuous and you just have to trust that um when you sit in a safety meeting that says okay people are getting really close to big ice don't do that anymore um and it's kind of in alaska yes we get some pretty big ice you know the idea of officially an iceberg you need to be 16 feet above sea level in order to be an iceberg and then beyond that is small medium large and continental um in a place like this this scale is a lot grander and it is a lot more dangerous. And the ice is a lot more, um, I'll use the word mobile, um, because at one point we were sitting there watching a piece that was easily, um, it's probably a quarter mile square. And we we're watching this, and there's a cool looking cave uh, that had been formed as the water eats away at the underside of this piece. And the cave disappeared. And it's so big, you don't realize it's like, wait, that's moving. We got to go. And it was just like, it was, it was that, oh, this is what's happening. And it's, it's kind of in Alaska, things like that typically don't happen. Um, or it's a lot smaller. It's a lot, you know, smaller of an issue. Of course, ice turns over and melts and things like that. It is dangerous. Um, but there it is, it sneaks up on you. It kind of lures you in. Oh, it's so beautiful. Look at the textures of the ice. Um, and some of this multi-year ice is 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 really wild. Of course, it has these straight sides on it and a flat top. But you can see the years of snow accumulating on the top of it. And it just kind of has this kind of, yeah, it has this kind of beautiful, you know, kind of ethereal. The clouds are wispy and it, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. Um, you know, and so, you know, one of the... Um, one of the most exciting things uh, just to get started um, was that that kind of you only have one first night in Antarctica. It's it's kind of and when we arrived, it was blowing probably 35 knots to maybe 40 um, lenticular clouds forming over the tops of the mountains. And it was like one of those like, wow, wow. and the sun sets and it lights it up and it turns it colors. And so that's one of those memories that's going to stick as well as spending time around ice like that. Um, 
you know, I don't know if I'll, I'll be uh, jaded when it comes to uh, Alaskan glaciers anymore, but uh, they're, they're beautiful. They, they are in their own right. Every single glacier has its own kind of characteristics and, and its own uh, kind of uh, style. But, uh, you know, something like Antarctica is just huge on, its, on that scale. Mm. Yeah, I I can only imagine, uh, you know, and seeing the pictures, I guess. But uh, yeah, the 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 illusion of stability, I suppose, is maybe what those those large large. Uh, That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, they and they are relatively stable, but not <laughs> not stable like land is stable, sure. I guess. And uh, yeah, and you also mentioned whales. I guess that was one other thing. So I know that there are humpback whales down there. Uh, you met, talked about killer whales already, but were you seeing many whales, or is that something that that isn't really featured on these sorts of trips? Um, people have an expectation of whales there, and so there are certain spots that we went to that typically are whale um, hotspots. Mm-hmm. And so, if you look at kind of what all happens, humpback whales. There are quite a few humpback whales down there, um, as well as uh, minke whales. Now, minke whales here in Alaska are kind of Oh look, there's a minke whale. There it goes. Yeah. Um, they're they're erratic. They zigzag across your bow, and they're fairly difficult to photograph in any reasonable value down there. Just or, or in general, generally, yeah. Um, but we had some encounters on the ship that were exceptional. There was a cow and a calf um, that spent the better part of an hour bow riding, kind of crossing back and forth. And the water was still enough. We could watch them in the water and watch them move. And, uh, you know, everyone got photographs and, and iPhone videos and all this stuff because you could just see it happening right in front of you. And so they would, they would kind of weave in and out of the ice. They're a lot more compact of a whale than a humpback. And so, of course, there were humpbacks that moved around in the ice pack. And, uh, you know, at some points, um, minkies are a little well, better suited for ice pack travel. Um, there are, of course, killer whales that specifically feed more or less on um, the availability of those particular small whales. Um, and then uh, I got to see my first blue whale mm. um, in the crossing as well. There were there were two. Um, I didn't get a great look, but it was obvious the mottled skin and the, the kind of grayish hue on their skin. It was uh, the, the height of the blow. Um, it was really kind of one of those, you know... I, you start to to think about all that all the boxes you checked off, um, but you have to really kind of take it as a whole experience, um, because oftentimes you get kind of lost in your in your checklists um, if you're if you're going there for specific reasons. Um, because I didn't really have much expectation, um, you know. It's, if you're going down there to work, um, I knew I had two months, and uh, you know what would really make my trip is a blue whale. You know, that whole thing. And so, you know, seeing Wandering Albatross, seeing the blue whale, I ended up, it was just kind of a fluke, but uh, the weather was good enough to land on uh, Cape Horn on my birthday in November. And so we landed on Cape Horn, uh, blue whales, and then um, kind of another uh, specialty. Um, we had uh, ended up near the, in the Weddell Sea. And, um, you know, there are people that have worked in the industry that have, you know, for quite some time, they never had an opportunity to see an emperor penguin, and so because they're inland, they're they're kind of more elusive. Once the ice breaks up, the colony breaks up, and they're hard to find. 
Um, but we d- went down there early season, and we uh, the ship was pulled up to the fast ice, which is attached to the shoreline. And there was an emperor penguin that hopped out um, right behind the ship. Mm. And so, you know, everyone that wanted to see it got to see it. It was there. And, uh, yeah, it was just kind of a magical moment. And uh, to have that opportunity to to spend. And you hear stories of people. It helps you appreciate those sorts of things. It's like, well, I've been here doing this for five years. And that's the first emperor penguin I've ever seen. And it was a great encounter just sitting there on the ice. We were all in Zodiacs getting ready to do Zodiac cruising. And uh, it was like, woo, this is so much fun. And that was the first day. You know, it was welcome to Antarctica. Mm. Nice. So do you think you'll try and go back again? Absolutely. I'm yeah. asking for another contract. Yeah. Um, and so I'd like to do the end. Oh, um, okay. So right now I have friends that are down there that were on the team and had done kind of each end of the season. Um, and so right now the the pancake ice is forming. And so it's starting to oh, it's create. starting to get cold. It's already there, yeah. Wow. And yeah. so when you start to talk about like March um, and and April weather, uh, it is it is a hard stop. And so if if any of the brush-tailed penguins haven't had or hatched their chicks by Christmas, kind of late December, the likelihood of them getting to adult stage is very slim. Mm. You know, so it is a hard stop. That's it. Game over. So you like to see the the latter part of the the uh, summer summer and then fall, I guess. I would, yeah, because it is. Yeah, I'd love to see the days get shorter and the, the yeah. sunsets and all that stuff. Unfortunately, you know, in the industry, they're typically known as dead penguin tours, oh. um, kind of late in the season because there's just a lot of loss of life. Yeah, and if you're not ready for it, it can be pretty stark. Yeah, um, but the predators come out, and you get opportunities to to view that particular behavior. Interesting. Well, I understand that you might be giving a talk about some of your experiences later this, sometime in the next couple of months. Probably no date set um, yet. Not, not, we don't have a date set yet, but I'd like to, um, yeah, I'd love to show some photographs and video clips and things like that of the experience and, and kind of share um, the kind of flora and fauna of that space. Nice. And so if folks are in Sitka, maybe keep an eye out for that. I think it'd be through the Natural History Seminar Series, either in person or on Zoom. I guess it'll depend on how things are working logistically with the university there, but mm-hmm. be fun to see some pictures and uh, yeah, appreciate you coming in. Any other last thoughts that you want to share here before we wrap up? Um, it's a once in a lifetime trip. I encourage everyone to, if you're thinking about going there, um, you know, as a naturalist, as a person that loves nature and things like that, it is uh, once in a lifetime, you know, um, but I'm going to go back. Yeah. So <laughs> more than once for you, but right. yeah, <laughs> for most of us. Yeah. Sure. Well, thanks Simon. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded just a couple of days ago with Simon Hook. I was speaking with him about his couple of months working as a guide on Antarctic cruises after many years working in Southeast Alaska as a guide and naturalist. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.